September 13th. Um, as we jump into the passage in Matthew this morning, speaking of workplace, um, I have a, a list of sample rejection letters um, from employers here this morning. Has anybody re- been rejected from an interview? Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know you're like, I'm not going to raise my hand for that. We've all been rejected at some point, right? Like rejection is just part of our experience. But you know what's funny is there's like this unspoken rule. There's like a social code that says if you have to reject somebody, you can't tell them the truth, right? Like whatever you do, don't tell them the truth because that might be too hurtful for them. That might be too much for them to bear. So here's a few sample rejection letters. We regret to inform you this position is filled. The timing does not seem to be right for us to entertain other roles for you. That's a lot of words, right? Like what are they actually saying? What they meant to say was we didn't really like you and we think it'd be hard to work with you. They didn't say that though, right? They just have other meaningless words put together. Or uh, here's, here's one. Um, our needs have currently changed and we're looking for a different type of candidate. Ever heard that one? Like kind of vague, you know, let's not actually say what it is, but our needs have changed. You know, what they meant to say was you have kids and we're more of like a young and fun work environment. And we think the mom vibe might like put a damper on that. They're not going to say that, right? Uh, the, the last one is, you are overqualified and wouldn't feel challenged enough in this position, which what they meant to say was, we think you're smarter than us and we feel intimidated by you, <laughs> right? Like, no one's going to say the truth because rejection's hard. And so we don't say the thing that we're really thinking, but it is part of the human experience. It's threaded into the DNA of our social environment. And so Jesus, who was human born of a woman, and subjected himself to the social structure of his day, faced rejection the way that any of us have also faced rejection. And this morning, as he walks through several parables, we're going to see Jesus highlight, kind of bring a spotlight on rejection and what rejection means as we look at the gospel. So we're going to look at three parables. It's a rather large passage, um, but I think what you'll see is that these three parables are connected that he has a thread going through these three stories that help us to see a, a holistic picture of rejection as it relates to the gospel. So as we get into Matthew 21, go and open up your Bibles. Let me give you a little on-ramp. I'm going to summarize a few verses leading up to these parables for sake of time. So we have, as we come up to this passage, it's Holy Week, as we call it, um, where Jesus, or the Passion Week, where Jesus comes into the town. He comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Jake talked about that last weekend. It's Sunday, Palm Sunday, and the events leading up to uh, Friday, ultimately, which is the crucifixion of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ um, are really key. So we're honing in here on the maybe four days, Monday through Thursday, before we get up to that point. And the teachings of Jesus are fantastic during that week. So what happens is he goes from the triumphal entry, which is him coming into town. And then on Monday, he cleanses the temple. So he goes into the temple and he finds that there are people selling sacrificial animals because there are people who've traveled, who've made a pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem for the Holy Week, for Passover preparation. And they didn't travel with their animals that they had to sacrifice. And the Jewish leadership knew this. And so they're like, we could make some money off of these people who are traveling. They have to buy the animals, you know, the birds and the dove things. So they're selling these animals in the temple. And they're basically extorting people that have come from far away. And Jesus walks into the temple and he sees this and he's disgusted by it. 
And so in anger, he goes up, righteous anger. He throws the tables and he says this, my house will be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And he calls them thieves. You're stealing from these people. And so this is called the cleansing of the temple. And then from there, he goes on and he's going out of town and he sees a fig tree and he walks up to the fig tree to take some fruit off of the tree and sees that there's no fruit. It says he was hungry. That's what Matthew describes. And so seeing no fruit, he curses the tree. And right before their eyes, the disciples are with him. This tree withers up and dies. And he uses it as a lesson for the disciples in faith. And he tells them, if you had that kind of faith, you could actually see things greater than this happen. And again, we don't have time to dive into that moment, but it's a unique and interesting moment Jesus uses to teach about faith. And following these two events, the Jewish leaders challenge the authority of Jesus. So they come up to him. They've seen the temple cleansed. He came into town on a donkey and people are crying, Hosanna. And then he curses this fig tree and the Pharisees, indignant as they always are, say, by what authority do you do all these things? They question his authority. Which is really funny to me just to think about for a minute. Because what did they expect for him to do? So you take out like an ID card? Like paperwork, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Here's the authority. Here's the papers that say I can heal blind people and raise dead people. Like here's my documentation. I don't know what they wanted him to say. But he answers their question with a question. And he says, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Oh, and they start to deliberate. Got to be careful how we answer this. Uh, if we say that it's by the authority of heaven, that means Jesus is doing what he's doing by the authority of heaven, and, and they will not admit that. But if we say that he's not from heaven, these people, this crowd, they love John the Baptist. They're going to riot if we say anything other than his authority comes from heaven. And so they respond to Jesus by saying, we don't know. Okay, Jesus says, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do what I do. And so he begins to tell them parables to illustrate the authority of heaven that's been given to Christ. And we enter into Matthew chapter 21 at verse 28 with this first parable. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son... Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? The Jewish leaders respond with the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus starts with a parable about a father and two sons. And we see in this parable the rejection of of the father, specifically by the Jewish leadership, the people he's addressing. Notice, though, there are two rejections here. The first son initially rejected the father. I will not go, but afterward changed his mind and went. The second is initial compliance so as not to be perceived as rebellious, but possibly without ever intending to go. 
Jesus is clear. The first are the tax collectors and the sinners. They've initially rejected their father's request. They've lived in sin. They have error in their ways. They're not living a righteous life. They initially have rejected the law or the father's request, but they came around. The second group, though, are the Jewish leaders who outwardly are complying But then Jesus says, even when you saw it, when you saw others repent and turn from their way, he said, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And there's an implication of honor here toward the first, right? There are two rejections, but somehow the first group is honorable in that they finally came to a point of realization. They repented and turned from their ways, which is good news for all of us who've ever lived in any degree of rebellion or sin. That there is honor in turning from our sin and going and doing the thing that the Father asked us to do. The indictment, though, is toward the stiff religious elite who've seen the righteousness in John, who've watched the others repent and still refuse. They reject the Father. So the Father sends his Son, and Jesus opens up another parable. He transitions with this statement in verse 33. Here, another parable. So he's going to continue to reinforce this concept. The father was rejected. Now, here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asks. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you And given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Sharp guys, aren't they? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So the the father's rejected in the first parable. Then we have a second parable similar where we have the vineyard owner who sends his son. And here we see that the son is rejected. Now, this parable is packed full of simile about the kingdom of God. And we don't have time to dive into every little detail, but just think about it for a second. First, we have a vineyard growing fruit, which is such a rich metaphor in all of scripture, where we look in John 15 of Jesus being the vine and us abiding in him as the branches. Or we see over in um, the, the gospels where Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The vineyard is ripe. It's ready to be harvested. And we see the crushing of grapes. 
We see the making of wine, the wine press here in this parable, or the leasing of the property, the fact that this property, this winery, had been entrusted to mere men to produce fruit and then give back the yield to the vineyard owner. And finally, we see this prideful greed of the tenants who are grabbing on to more than what's theirs. But maybe the most vivid picture in this parable is the king sending his son, saying, surely they will listen to him. Which is possibly the most direct parable, in my mind, in all of the Gospels. That the king, the vineyard owner, the master, sends his son. And it is direct correlation between God the Father sending his son as a messenger. Surely they'll listen to him. For they beat one, killed another, and stoned another, referencing the prophets leading up to Jesus. If you look back at the Old Testament and the way that Israel, the Jewish people, responded to their prophets, or even the way that they responded to John the Baptist, when John the Baptist came on scene, he ended up beheaded, right? They didn't listen to him. They were killed and run out of the vineyard, and ultimately the son is going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, sacrificed, And we know the end of the story as it goes from there. But as Jesus finishes the story, he has this pointed question. What will the owner do to the tenants? And with density, you see the response of the Pharisees say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And you realize they have no idea what he's talking about. These guys are clueless. Well, of course they'll put him to death. That's what the righteous thing is to do. And I love how Jesus responds here because he uses the very psalm, Psalm 118, that was used just a day before on Sunday, the triumphal entry when Jesus came into town and all the people in the town, as he was riding in on a donkey, they're throwing palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm chapter 118. And so Jesus goes back to that Psalm and he says, listen to this. He quotes, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Hosanna will be rejected a rejected stone, but that stone will become the cornerstone, the rock of the church. But by the Jewish leaders, by the elite, by the self-righteous Pharisees, the son too has been rejected. And he shares one final story. In Matthew chapter 22, we're just continuing on here in the passage. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner and my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests... He saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. 
And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And he finishes with a very, very stark, contrasting parable of the rejection of invitation and the acceptance. We'll get to some of these difficult statements he makes at the end here, but I want you to see the rejection here of the Spirit. So we have the rejection of the Father. We have the rejection of the Son. And in this parable, the rejection of the Spirit. And here's what I mean. The Father throws a wedding party for his son and his son's bride. This, in my mind, is a direct reference to the wedding feast that will take place after the resurrection, after the second coming. It's alluded to in Ephesians chapter 5. It's described in detail in Revelation chapter 19. The father invites his guest and none of them show. So this is the Israelite self-righteous leaders who are refusing to repent. He invites his guests, but none of them show. This is a rejection of the invitation that's delivered by the work of the Spirit. How do I know that? Because in Acts chapter 7, there's a conversation that takes place between Stephen, who is the first martyr for the church, a saint. Stephen is having a conversation with the same people. I I would be surprised if one or two of these religious pharisaical leaders weren't actually on scene with Jesus and on scene later with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The same self-righteous, pompous Jewish leaders are there. And Stephen says this as he's preaching to them right before they stone him to death. In Acts chapter 7 verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You've rejected the spirit in which God has brought the invitation to the wedding. The invitation was delivered, it was clear, and you rejected it. But then there's this confusing line in in 22 verse 8 where Jesus says, those invited were not worthy. And this sounds counter to everything I know to be true of the gospel as it relates to our own worthiness, that all are unworthy and yet all are welcome. That's the message of the gospel, right? I reference things like 1 Peter where it says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. Or I go back to John chapter 3 where, for God so loved the world, right? The whole world that all are willing, all are able to come to repentance, to come to the wedding feast. And so for Jesus to say in this parable, those invited were not worthy is confusing because certainly none of us are worthy. So why are some now worthy and others not? a challenging concept. Let me explain it to you this way. Anyone have a teenage daughter in the room? A couple of you. Maybe a teenage granddaughter or a niece. <laughs> I got a teenage daughter. Imagine for a minute that your daughter is going to a school dance with a boy from school. So you took her shopping. She's got new shoes. She's got a dress. She spent hours on her hair, curling it and pulling it up just right. And she is stunning. You take pictures as a family You're so proud of her. You're so excited. And secretly, you know, she acts frustrated at all the doting, but she really kind of likes it, you know. And six o'clock rolls around. It's time. She's going to be picked up for the dance. Six o'clock comes and goes. 6.15, 6.25. You say, check your phone. Maybe he had car trouble. No text, 
no phone call. And so you begin to busy yourself in the awkwardness of the moment. You go outside, start watering the lawn, and you look back through the window and see your daughter with a tear streaming down her face. She's heartbroken. He didn't show. So you do about the only thing you can do as a parent of a heartbroken teenage girl. You go to the grocery store to get a pint of ice cream. And in the parking lot, lo and behold, there he is with a group of friends. He catches eyes and realizes he can't avoid this interaction. And so he approaches you and you release the fist (laughs) that you have clinched as he walks up. And he awkwardly says, oh, sir, you know, I was wondering if I could come by and speak to your daughter later. And you reply very simply by saying, you are not worthy of her. Do you feel that? Because what happened was the, the wedding feast was set. It was primped. It was ready. The invitation was clear. And they refused to attend. And so when Jesus says those who are invited are not worthy, it stirs this confusion for us. And yet we make sense of it in realization of the rejection of the invitation by the Spirit. And I appreciate the way that Luke describes it in his um, description in Acts chapter 13. He's talking about Paul and Barnabas now preaching again to the same crowd. So we see this group of religious leaders keep popping up. In Acts 13, he says, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that's to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You have judged yourself unworthy. So when Jesus says, Those invited are unworthy. They have made themselves unworthy by the rejection of the invitation. And so the king goes out into the streets. He turns from, in this case, the Jews to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. And that's why you and I are all here. Because he's turned to the world and then said, okay, anyone can come. Everyone can come. The guests who I invited, they didn't show up. So come on, enjoy the feast. Enjoy the wedding. And it says that, Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom he found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Notice that it says both bad and good. No one was distinct by their righteousness. It was good and bad. Wicked, clean, pure, dirty, defiled, undefined, both bad and good. They all came and filled the wedding hall. That makes sense. That connects with us, right, from a, from a gospel perspective. Okay, good. Jesus invited, God invited everybody to come to the feast, and we all filled the hall. But then there's this confusing last idea. It's almost as if Jesus is adding an addendum to the parable. And I wish he would have stopped right there at verse 10, but he didn't. He says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. So apparently all good and bad, all the guests had been clothed. Think about it. They came off of the streets. They didn't go dress up for a wedding. They weren't already dressed for a wedding. They came off the streets into the wedding banquet, but it all had been clothed. 
They were prepared by the king, offered a robe by the king. A friend of mine, uh, John, this morning was telling me about this really fr- uh, fancy restaurant up in Wyoming. Like the kind, I don't think we have this kind of class in our society anymore, but the kind of restaurant where you have to have a coat to get in, like they literally just won't let you in without a coat. Have you been to one of those places? Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> but I've heard of them. Uh, so you go to this restaurant and John says, if you don't have a coat, they have a closet in the back and the mater d, is that the way you say it? Yes. Casey's got my back. The mater d will go and get you a coat so that you can come join the dinner. So in this environment here in the parable of the wedding feast, the, the king, the one who's thrown the feast, has clothed his guests. Hey, you don't have a coat. It's okay. I'm going to give you my coat. And clearly in this uh, parable, the clothing of the guests, the robe, represents the righteous robe that's been provided for us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we're all invited, and then all come, the good and the bad, and then all are clothed by this wedding garment of righteousness, which is described several places in Scripture. It's kind of like the the way you see in, in the prodigal son in Matthew 27, where the son comes home and the father is there, greets him, and puts his own robe on him, right? That was custom. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we've been further clothed and death has been swallowed up. Or in Revelation chapter 7, maybe the most direct reference to this, we see that the saints have their washed robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The robe represents the salvation that covers over all of our inability, covers over all our unrighteousness, and allows for us to enter the wedding feast. However, there was one. That's how, that's how I know that this isn't talking about the good versus the bad, because it said all were welcome, all came, the good and the bad, but there was one, one guy who said, no, I'm good. No, my my." Clothes are fine. In fact, I worked hard on my clothes. I've pressed them and cleaned them, and I don't need your robe. I'm good. This is the self-righteous approach to entering the wedding feast. That my own righteousness, a belief for this man, that his own righteousness is good enough. That he doesn't need to be clothed by the righteousness of the king, and so ultimately he rejects the robe, therefore rejecting the spirit, the spiritual clothing, the spiritual righteousness, believing himself to be good enough. But maybe the most chilling verse as I wrap up this morning is verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. I believe there's a point in the life of every human being who has encountered the gospel, every person who's heard a parable or read a scripture or listened to a sermon where you have perceived he was speaking about you. You've been invited and you hear it. You understand, I am invited to the feast. You're being offered a robe of righteousness, saying your, your righteousness doesn't count for anything. Here's the righteousness of Christ 
wrapping you. Maybe you've tried to clean yourself up. Maybe you've tried to put things together, but it just doesn't matter. And culturally speaking, the problem is rejection is taboo, right? Certainly God wouldn't reject me. I can put myself together. I don't need a rope. I'm not going to be rejected at the end of the day because rejection, that just sounds too exclusive. But the Bible is clear that those who believe they are enough, they believe their dress is good enough, their robe, their clothing, garment of the wedding, will be rejected by the king the way this Man is, and we don't like to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. We don't like to consider, even here, Jesus concludes with some imagery of hell, like the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness. It's just not fun to discuss. But friends, I think it's so critical. It's such a building block to the gospel, the way that we know it and see it. It's foundational for the reason we do what we do at ABC and as Christians, that if we don't understand that there is a likely rejection, that those who have clothed themselves in righteousness, those who have rejected the Father, rejected the Son, rejected the Spirit, and will not put on the robe of righteousness being offered to them, are going to spend eternity separated from God in hell. The Bible is clear about that, even though it's not fun to talk about. And if we lose sight of the fact that hell is a real place and that people without the blessing and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ will spend eternity separated from God, then we've lost all purpose in anything that we're doing here. There's no point. I appreciate how Sam Storms says it. He says, if there's no eternal conscious punishment for those who reject Jesus, then why bother with taking the time of making the effort, telling them about him? If divine wrath, he says, is little more than a figure of speech, there is no urgency in taking the gospel to the lost. But because it's true, because there is rejection, it makes it all the more important that you and I sit here this morning and consider for a moment what's being offered. That the invitation is for all, both good and bad. And when we show up, we will be clothed, robed, with the righteousness of Christ, which will allow for us to enjoy the feast in eternity with God forever. Jesus faced rejection to make a way for every human being on the planet to be clothed in his righteousness, with his garment, receiving freely the gift of eternal life at the feast of the king. But some will reject it. There are several types of perspectives here this morning, I think. There are those, those of us in the room who've acknowledged that and realized, yeah, I, I've, got, I've got sin. I've lived in rebellion. I, I am in no way, shape, or form able to clean myself up and be presentable for a wedding feast. Therefore, I need the clothing of the righteousness of the robe of the king. And we have stepped into that. And the message for you this morning is wear that robe with confidence. Jesus Christ has clothed you. You need not wash your clothes. You need not try to put yourself together. Live in the confidence of the wedding gown, the, the garments that he's placed on you. There's another perspective in the room, and that's a perspective that maybe you've worked hard at putting yourself together, 
doing good, living rightly. And you would come up to a passage like this or a parable and you'd say, I don't need a robe or a garment to be put on me. I have worked hard for my life. I've done everything I was supposed to do, like these Jewish leaders. I have followed the law. Don't tell me what I need. The invitation for you is to realize that in your own sin, you will be rejected from the wedding feast. Because there is no one, the Bible teaches, no, not one, who is righteous apart from Christ. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that he died a sin sacrifice once and for all to clothe us in his righteousness. So the invitation for you is to recognize your sin this morning and receive the clothing of the righteousness of God. Now there's a third perspective here, and that is that you feel inadequate to receive the clothing of the king. You might come up to this passage of the story and say, yes, I am unworthy the way that Jesus said. I don't deserve to have a a clean, righteous wedding robe placed on me. And that is simply not true. Jesus is clear in the parable. They went out to the street, both bad and good, everyone. There is no distinction here. Every single human being on the planet is being offered this robe of righteousness, regardless of what you've done or where you've been or what you're addicted to or what you're struggling with or where your mind goes or how you think about yourself in the world. This garment, this robe of righteousness is being offered to you. And all you need to do is take it and say, okay, clothe clothe me, wrap me. We're going to take communion and I'm going to have our our ushers come forward to pass the elements. Here's how I want you to think about this. If If you're a Christ follower, if you would consider yourself a Christian and you would say, yes, I've been clothed in that robe of righteousness, then take communion this morning as a confident reminder of his cleansing blood on your life. If you're wrestling right now this morning, maybe with your own sin and just considering, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm willing to let go and just receive that for whatever reason, whether you sense yourself to be inadequate or, or whether you feel overly confident. We're going to continue to preach the gospel here at ABC. If you come here long enough, you're going to hear the story again that Jesus Christ died so that every human being on the planet could be forgiven for their sin and enter into eternal life, which is being described in this passage as the wedding feast. The table's been set. The invitation's gone out. And all you need to do is accept it. And this morning, when we take communion, which is something we do specifically for believers, for Christians, you might take communion for the very first time. If you've been on the fence, if you've said, yeah, I've I've just, I've been hesitant to receive that robe of righteousness, may this morning be the morning that you say, okay, I'm in. I want the righteousness of Christ. I want to be clothed so that I can come to the wedding feast and I can sit in confidence knowing that I'm clothed by Christ. It's as simple as praying a prayer to say, Jesus, you are the son of God. You did die for my sin. You did rise again. I believe that and I confess that and I want to follow you. So clothe me in your righteousness. And if you choose to pray that prayer, you might take communion for the very first time this morning, receive the bread. And we'll talk through that in just a second. So we're going to pass the elements out after I pray. Just hold on to them and we'll take them together. Um, By the way, there's gluten-free crackers in the lobby. If you need, um, you can just slip away as I'm praying here and grab that. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for 
the clarity of the gospel, even in the midst of a, a stark picture, a, a contrasting example of rejection, we again see your desire, your heart and hunger for us is to show up, to be clothed, to let you put your robe on us the way the prodigal son let his father clothe him. So Lord, may we be clothed in your righteousness this morning. In your name I pray, amen.
It's a beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 7. It says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun, the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This morning, as we hold in our hand the bread representing the body of Christ that was broken, the rejection of Christ, that he suffered and endured for the sake of forgiveness, for the sake of clothing our own wicked bodies. Let's take the bread, reminding ourselves of the clothing of God. And then we take the cup, which Revelation says literally has washed the robe has cleansed us from unrighteousness. Let's together celebrate the cup. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the invitation, for making it clear, for calling all, both good and bad, and clothing us with a robe of righteousness. In your name I pray, amen.